there are many pro-abortion arguments that warrant deep reflection and analysis. And on the flip side, there are so many pro-abortion arguments that we just can't believe people hold to and believe. Today, we're going to be talking about some of those absolutely terrible arguments. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. My name is Peter, host of the program, and I am joined once again by the, oh man, the master of the show, uh, as it were, the, the guy with the brains and the experience. And uh, man, Cam, it's so good to see you again. It is good to see you as well. You're going to add me on that. I, you definitely put my tires far too much. I'm, I'm excited for this episode, Peter. I, um, I know that we're going to get into it in just a minute. This is not an episode to point fingers and laugh at people who make bad arguments. This is an episode dedicated towards helping you not get tripped up by weak arguments that posture as being strong. Arguments that are difficult at times to navigate, not because they're strong or sound, but because they bend the rules of arguments or, or things like that. And so, um, again, this is not a, a time as cathartic as it may be at times to make fun of people for making bad arguments. This is not to make fun of people, but rather to make sure that you're not getting tripped up, investing tremendous amounts of time in an argument that should be responded to in a very simple way and move on into something more meaningful, like a bodily autonomy argument, like addressing a lot of the suffering in our world, things that we've dedicated whole episodes to already. And I'm sure we're going to continue to dedicate whole episodes to you. But Peter, I get ahead of myself. Let's talk a little bit about the show. Um, talk a little bit about what we're going to have coming down the tube here in the next couple months. Yeah. And just to highlight what you said, that's the purpose of the show. If this is your first time here or second time or third, maybe. Our goal is not to just destroy everyone else's bad argument and feel fantastic about ourselves because we, you know, put their argument down in the most grandiose fashion possible. Our goal is to equip you as a pro-lifer to have effective and winsome conversations about abortion. That's why we're here. That's why this podcast exists. And that's why we hope you tune in and uh, and do outreach and have conversations in your community and in your sphere of influence. Yeah, Cam, there are a few things coming up down the line. Number one, I'm excited about this one, the Toronto March for Life for anyone in and around Toronto or anywhere in Ontario, or if you want to fly in from Australia or some random uh, part of the world. Um, it might be not be random to you, but it, it might be random to us since we are here. <laughs> Come down to Toronto on May 13. We're having the Toronto March for Life. I am honored uh, to have a spot speaking there. Um, I'll be MC for a lot of the events and then uh, have a, a section where I'll be speaking as well. So if you want to hear me live, um, I don't think it's that particularly <laughs> exciting, but it might be for some of you. Um, or if you just want to come out, join the community, join the, the, the movement as a whole, um, be equipped, be inspired. It's not just going to be a march where we like march around, but there are training sessions available. There's opportunity to meet some of the leaders in the movement. So mark it down on your calendar, circle it many, many times, schedule that day off, prioritize it. May 13, the Toronto March for Life. Cam, we're having, um, so one of the things we like to do for our Patreon supporters as well um, and if you want to be a Patreon supporter, patreon.com slash pro life guys. One of the things we like to do is have, um, like ask me anything sessions and, uh, quarterly round tables where we sit down with some leaders in the movement just to have a, a conversation, intimate conversation, um, where you are patron supporters are involved as well. Kim, tell us about what might be coming very shortly. 
Yeah, so we did our first ever quarterly roundtable back in January, and we had Mark Harrington and Josh Brom come on the show. It was a phenomenal um, conversation, lots of questions from the audience, the whole shebang, um, about some different arguments about the, the structure and setup and history of the pro-life movement. And we realized that there's really an appetite for the history of Canada's pro-life movement. Where did we come from? How did we end up here? What has been done already? Why did it work? Why did it not work? Why did things change? All that kind of stuff. And so we are working on getting a couple of legends from Canada's pro-life movement to be um, our guests, our primary guests for this upcoming um, quarterly roundtable. It'll happen in early May. We'll send out lots of info for um, the tentative date in the coming weeks. Um, but yeah, we're really excited to have a, a big focus on the history of Canada's pro-life movement, particularly like you said, Peter, leading into March for Life season across Canada. We have lots of marches for life um, in that early to middle of May kind of um, realm. And so this can help you more firmly set your feet in understanding where we've come from and where we're going. And so I'm really, really excited for that. I hope that for those of you who are already Patreon supporters, you're able to join us. For those of you who are not already Patreon supporters, you can absolutely get an invite to this thing simply by signing up as a Patreon supporter. It doesn't have to be hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month, though if you want to donate hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of dollars a month to help us at the program, you absolutely are most welcome to. But at any level of Patreon support, you can be a part of our course quarterly roundtable. And so go to patreon.com slash prolifeguys to get an invite to that upcoming event. There'll be lots more info about that in the weeks to come, like I said. And yeah, let us know if there's other topics or guests that you'd like us to feature on our um, subsequent quarterly roundtables. As the name suggests, we're going to do them four times a year. And so we're already working on our guests for the rest of the year as well. If you've got people that you really want to see, really want to talk to, really want to get your questions answered by, Hit us up. Um, but yeah, looking forward to that and looking forward to seeing many of our Patreon supporters there. Perfect. And Cam, with that, we go to some of the arguments that we've heard. Now, maybe, uh, you know, some of our listeners have done pro-life outreach and activism and had conversations and maybe they've heard, maybe you guys have heard similar arguments, which, um, man, we, we've done this, Cam. You've done what? 10,000 plus conversations. I've done way less. Um, I know you'll love what I, I inform the world <laughs> how, how much you've done. Um, we, we've heard our share of bad arguments, um, so we're going to share some of them here. We're going to start with the Twitter sphere. I think that's the word, Twitter sphere, um, a place that we all know and love for the most intellectual and thought-provoking conversations. That is not true, actually. Um, but every once in a while, so we have a, a Twitter account pro -life, at pro -life Guys, and uh, every once in a while, some pro-abortion account will tag us into uh, a, a thread that they're they're doing, and sometimes I'll respond, and sometimes I won't. Um, but I get to see what is happening. And then I saw this this comment and it was like, what? Uh, this sounds wild. So Cam, I'm going to share this comment. And then um, I know you looked at the thread. So you're going to give us a bit of a background of what we have here. And then maybe like share why it's wrong, but also how can we respond to this? I want to get to this as well. We want to be equipped to know, like you said off the top, how we can respond when people give us um, perhaps seemingly good arguments, um, but in reality, arguments that are very terrible. So this is what this Twitter account person wrote, and I quote, if sperm aren't produced, human beings cannot exist. Therefore, the creation of human beings begin when sperm and ova are produced. That is a scientific fact, end quote. 
Yeah, so Peter, th this is one of many different arguments that try to trivialize or sow seeds of confusion around when human life begins. And like we've said off the top, this is an incredibly weak argument, but unfortunately, it is often an incredibly effective argument because it sends pro-lifers desperately trying to put together perfect definitions to what it, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be an organism? All this kind of stuff. We hear lots of different similar arguments around, okay, well, a tumor has slightly different DNA than the rest of the body because of the mutations. Does that make it its own organism? Or we'll hear stuff like, well, a banana shares 99% of the same genetic information as a human. Does that make them worthy of human rights? People trying to sow seeds of confusion into this realm of biology because they realize that if we equate personhood, personhood being a philosophical um, kind of idea, principle, that these are valuable entities, being a person qualifies you for all sorts of rights and privileges and responsibilities and whatnot. If we equate personhood with humanity, that's dangerous for them and their worldview because that eliminates the option of abortion. And so they are trying to trivialize the relevance or importance of the humanity of the preborn. Sometimes we'll even hear people say, we've been wrong before. We used to think that the earth was flat. We used to think that um, the the universe pivoted around the sun, all things, uh, sorry, the universe pivoted around the earth, all these sorts of things. Science has been wrong before. It might be wrong again. Therefore, we can't trust in science. This is very ironic because we are often um, labeled as the anti-science group, and, and the tables turn when they realize that they're actually the ones who are anti-science, when they're saying that we can't trust science in this realm. And so that's what they're getting at, and that's why it's dangerous, because it, to be fair, it is actually really difficult to generate or refer to definitions that do not have the burden of proof on us, right? Because as soon as we start defining terms, then they start trying to pick holes and, well, what do you mean by this? And what do you mean by that? And what do you mean by these areas? And what about this? And what about that? And questions are good. And yet, as we've talked about before, the way pro-lifers lose conversations about abortion, the way people walk away with no meaningful change is if the conversations don't come to their natural conclusion. And so if they can waste 10, 15, 20 minutes of your time by trying to pin you down on a perfect definition of what does it mean to be a living organism, that's not the best use of your time. And so let's not get caught in the trap of having the burden of proof on us. They are the ones who want to kill something. They are the ones who want to do an action. Therefore, the burden of proof is actually on them to demonstrate the fact that it does not harm an entity of value. The burden of proof is on them. And so that's where our questions come into play by saying, you know what? It doesn't really matter how I define human being at this point. You are the one who want to act. Therefore, you are entitled, required to generate the definitions. And I am the one who is able to poke um, holes in your argument, as it were. This is a principle that um, Greg Kokel talks about in his book, Tactics, phenomenal resource that I would highly recommend talking about how to understand where the burden of proof lies.
but even one other thing um, that we can do, because again, that might send us down a rabbit trail where they try to talk their way around what it means to be a human being. And you might have a difficult time if you don't have a biological background or if they're particularly eloquent, you might have a hard time um, discussing it. And so you can go to an appeal to authority. And I, I can feel the cringes from all of our philosophically minded people understanding that an appeal to authority is a logical fallacy in that just because people of power, people of authority and influence say something doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. And yet, as we've talked about in several episodes before now, and as I'll briefly summarize right now, the overwhelming, the overwhelming majority of professional biologists, embryologists, and scientists polled across America, over 5,000 professional biologists were willing to acknowledge and admit that human life begins at fertilization. These are people not even like you and I, Peter. These are people who are professional biologists working in the field some of them support abortion because they have terrible ph philosophical worldviews. Some of them don't support abortion because they have better philosophical worldviews. And yet all of them, because of their scientific aptitude, all of these people from all different backgrounds, from all different um, kind of focuses, but unified by the fact that they um, are professional biologists will acknowledge that human life begins at fertilization. And so that's something that I often encourage people to do of if you're not willing to accept my statement or the statement in my brochure or pamphlet that states human life begins at fertilization, please go to your high school textbook, your university textbooks, whatever resources you can find, pull out your smartphone and Google, when does human life begin? Every single time it will say human life begins at fertilization. That is over 95% of professional biologists will acknowledge and admit that. They have to find a particularly obscure spot to find some person that tries to justify, justify otherwise. And so an appeal to authority, though technically a logical fallacy, is incredibly effective in, si in sidestepping that rambling rabbit trail that may bog you down. And you can also just ask those two central questions to the human rights argument that should appeal to the sensibility of anybody reasonable. Unfortunately, there are more and more people that are unreasonable, but for those who are new to the program, the two central questions of the human rights argument being if something is growing isn't it alive? Obviously, not all living organisms are growing. There are one-cell organisms that don't grow that are alive. And yet everything that is growing as a coordinated entity is alive. And if a living organism has human parents, isn't he or she a living human? That demonstrates that from the moment of fertilization, through a different genetic code, through a coordinated process of development and growth, we have a living member of the human family. That's where I would go. If, that, if those two questions don't work, like I said, you can appeal to authority, you can challenge them, and you can spin the burden of proof on them because they're the ones seeking to act. They're the ones who are not only seeking to act, but the ones who are contravening not only popular biological opinion, but stable, universal biological fact that human life begins at fertilization. And so go there when you're challenged or, or when people try to trivialize the relevance of the human, when human life begins and understand that there is a fundamental difference between um, the science and the philosophy. Challenge them on the fact that we can accept the science and we can debate the philosophy. The philosophy, science can't tell us what we ought to do, only philosophy can tell us that. Let's debate the philosophical component and what happens when we divorce humanity from personhood. That's where I would go, Peter. Does that make sense to you? Anything you want to add? 
that makes a lot of sense. I was just thinking about the uh, the the fallacy of appealing to authority, and I think that becomes far more relevant when there are so many different quote unquote authorities that have so many differing opinions. But when the folks that actually study this, 95%, 96% of them, as we talked about on episode two, um, when they, even though some are pro-choice, some are pro-abortion, many are not Christian, you know, they they think that abortion is okay. They still say that human life, all of our lives began at that moment of fertilization. So um, very important. I don't know if you said this, um, but uh, I, I will say it. And if, if you did say it, then people will hear it twice. Um, if you just Google, when does human life begin? There's a Princeton University link that comes up on the very top. Um, click that Princeton University link. And that is a, a gathering, if you will, not a gathering is the wrong word, but uh, a whole list of quotes from embryology and biology textbooks uh, that say that very thing of when human life begins. All right, Cam, that's that. Um, with that, we go to the second one, which uh, the note you have here is the burning IVF lab. So I'm going to take a stab at what I think you mean. And if uh, you want to clarify, um, I mean, the floor is yours. So there's a burning IVF lab, um, which means that there are frozen embryos that are in this lab that if are not saved are going to be burned. Um, but then there's also perhaps another human, another child within this lab as well. The question posed to the pro-lifer is, who will you save? The thousand frozen embryos on your left hand or the little child or the adult on the right hand? You can only save one. Who are you going to save? Am I? Is this what you meant when you wrote this, sir? That's exactly what I meant. And I know, I'm sure, again, I, I can feel the eyes rolling. People don't actually make this argument anymore. This was a Facebook meme five years ago, and nobody's made the argument since because they realized just how absurd it was. And yet I was literally at Mount Royal University two weeks ago, and one of the main counter-protesters was trying to make this as her core argument. And I literally said to her, you know, th there are other pro-abortion arguments that are far stronger than this. Do you want to talk about bodily autonomy? Do you want to talk about a lot of the messed up stuff that's happening in our world? And she was like, no, the burning IVF lab demonstrates the, the um, inadequacy of the pro-life worldview or the anti-choice worldview. And I was like, okay, if, if you really want to talk about this, we can talk about this. But it's not a meaningful thought experiment, right? That your answer if, if you're sweating bullets and you're saying, okay, well, do I want to save the thousand frozen embryos or the one toddler? Like, generally speaking, I want to save more rather than fewer. If I can save a thousand toddlers versus one toddler, I'll probably try to save the thousand dollars. Maybe you're sweating in your boots and, and like, okay, well, if I save the thousand embryos, then they're going to laugh at me and try to say, well, you're consistent, but you're absurd for not saving the one toddler. Like, why do you hate toddlers so much? But if you save the toddler, then they're going to say that your pro-life um, worldview is inconsistent. That is not the truth at all. And the way that I spun it back to her, Peter, I know that you do this slightly differently to make it a little bit um, lighter of a conversation. The way that I framed it back to her was this, that you know what? If a daycare is burning down and I am forced to choose between saving my daughter and saving another child, who am I going to save? I'm going to save my daughter. But in saving my daughter, does that mean that I don't think the other toddlers are valuable? Do I think that it's okay to directly and intentionally kill those toddlers if their lives are not at risk? Do I think that I can slaughter them before I save my daughter? Any statement of value towards the one is not a statement of lack of value towards the other. And so regardless of whether you choose the toddler or the frozen embryos, 
it isn't actually a value statement towards the other. You might make the statement, you might make the decision based on your family connection to your daughter. You might make it based off of your ability to sustain the life of the person that you're saving. I mean, triage is a thing in the military and in, in army beds when they realize, can I should I dedicate my time towards this person who no matter what I do is tragically going to die or should I dedicate my time towards this person that I could actually save? There's lots of factors that are going to go into your decision and yet, whatever you end up deciding, so long as you're not going to shoot both of them in the head or stomp both of them to the ground and directly or intentionally kill either of them, if you save one and are unable to save the others, that's not a value statement on whether or not the other option is valuable or, or dignified. I mean, heck, theoretically, I, I'm sure that it has happened where somebody has saved their dog rather than saving a child that was trapped under a beam and could not be saved. I would argue that you should always save the human because humans are objectively more valuable. And yet even by saving a dog, that doesn't necessarily mean that the human does not have value. Um, and so there's a lot of factors that go into those decisions. Peter, that's the way I do it. I know that you have a something that can help bring a little bit of levity towards the conversation. How do you normally do it? Yeah, it's very, very similar. Just highlighting um, yeah, the very same thing. So one of the questions I've asked is if Batman and Spider-Man are both in a burning building and you're the only one who has the opportunity to save them, but you can only save one, who do you save? And um, very, very same thing. They might save one over the other, but people would say that um, they're, you're not saving them based on their value. Perhaps they're the first one you reach. Perhaps they're the one you like the most. Maybe you like Spider-Man, depending on which Spider-Man it is. Um, but uh what, what we're talking about, Cam, is, is what you highlighted really well, is that it's not a value statement on who else is in the building, but you're doing what you can to save uh, to save the ones that you can. So thank you so much for that. With that, we will dive into the, the third one. Um, and this is the acorn and an oak tree argument. Cam, we've heard this before. Oh, man, I've heard this many times. We've also talked about it before. I wish I knew what episode because we dove into it a little deeper. Um, so we'll talk about it briefly this time. But basically, uh, you don't sit under an acorn for shade, uh, and therefore, uh, their value is different. Um, and man, there's so many reasons why this is wrong, especially when you compare this to like full human beings, not fully grown or fully developed human beings, but full, uh, complete human beings. I mean, there's not incomplete human beings, I guess. But when you compare this to human beings, we're saying that because one uh, can contribute a certain amount or because one can accomplish something or because one can do something for us, that provides the value. Man, where would you go when, when you hear something like this? So, so this is, like you said, a pure ableism argument. This is simply a matter of you are valuable based on what you can contribute. And so I go straight for the jugular right away in a, I, I'm confused. Are you saying that humans can be killed if they don't help us or, or we don't have anything to profit from them? Well, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that, that these aren't contributing anything. Okay, so how much do you have to contribute before we stop killing you? How much do you have to benefit society before we stop killing you? Because sure, we, are, we value acorns differently than we do oak trees based on their utility that because we value all oak trees differently than we value all humans, we still cut down oak trees at times. If they're, if they're interfering with, with power lines, if they're 
um, spoiling the roads that they are planted around. It, lots of reasons why we kill adult oak trees too, but we find particular value in them because of their utility. We don't say that unless you can perform open heart surgery, we're going to kill you, right? We, we would never say that. We're not a utilitarian. We're not an ableist society, or we should not be. Unfortunately, we are trending that direction very quickly, especially with the introduction of euthanasia-assisted suicide, as we further, as a society, undermine the rights and dignity of people with disabilities, um, whether permanent disabilities, whether um, temporary disabilities, whatever it may be. We are constantly undermining that dignity. And yet there is an effective push for many of those with disabilities that many people are able to understand. I mean, heck, we just celebrated World Down Syndrome Day again. And we, we published a video last year on World Down Syndrome Day. We just did another World Down Syndrome Day talking about the beauty and value of these human beings, regardless of how much they contribute. I, again, as I talked about in that video that you can find on our social media, I think, Peter, you reshared it a bunch of times, but also on our YouTube page, that let's not talk about aborting children with Down syndrome is inappropriate because they're very happy and because they can bring joy into our lives. Human beings are not valuable because they have the potential to bring joy into our lives. Human beings are valuable because they are human beings. Um, because obviously, as many people listening to the show will acknowledge, they're made in the image and likeness of God, regardless of whether they manifest particular attributes or not. And so we simply need to challenge the fact that this is an ableist argument, whether we do that through age-based discrimination, asking, okay, well, why can't a preborn child perform open heart surgery? Why can't they survive independently? Why can't they do any of this? It's because of their age. Doesn't that make abortion age-based discrimination? Or we ask what our friend Josh Brom will say of the equal rights argument, that every attribute that we have, or, or all but one of them, is shared in varying capacities. But we acknowledge that the right to life is shared equally amongst all people, regardless of all of those varying differences. What is the only thing that we all share to 100% equally with each other? our membership in the human family. Therefore, the thing that we bear 100% equally, the right to not be killed as innocent people, should be based on something that we all share equally, which is our membership in the human family. Um, he wouldn't quite say the human family necessarily, um, but that's the principle that, that and the language that we generally use at CCBR. And so that's the way that I would go to it, attack it directly on as an ableist argument that it is, and help them to understand that particularly whether they're a university student, whether they are a high school student, whomever they may be, that their value, and not their economic value, not the how much they contribute and how much taxes they pay, but the fact that they are not allowed to be killed as an innocent human is not because they may contribute significantly towards the economy or towards politics or, or anything else, but rather because they're an innocent human. And innocent humans are the are the foundation of our innocence and our membership in the human family is the foundation for not being killed. Perfect. Thank you, sir. And here we go to the last one that we're going to touch on today. This was a recommendation from our friend and colleague, Michael. So thank you so much for that. It's a five minute YouTube video or uh, around five minutes called Phil 103, like philosophy 103, Liz Harmon on abortion cam. I just wrote out some of the, uh, sort of a synopsis of what was said. 
And I would love to hear your, your response because you didn't watch this video. So this is like hearing this for the first time. Um, so here we go. She talked about early stage abortion and said that there is nothing morally bad about early abortion. Now we've heard this sort of argument before or this sort of conclusion before rather um, based on uh, any number of arguments, but this is her argument. So if a fetus has not ever been conscious, then nothing morally bad happens. Um, everyone living today. So this is how you, she talks about moral status. Um, everyone living today had moral status as an early embryo um, when she says that abortion is okay in virtue of our futures. In fact, that we were in the beginning stages of being persons. Now, some will die, she said, through either abortion or miscarriage. And she said, that's a different kind of entity. So there's two, two kinds of entities, those with futures who have a moral status and those without futures who uh, are not given such moral status. Um, so, so those who die through miscarriage or abortion are a different kind of entity because they don't have a future as a person and therefore they don't have a moral status. Now, you could ask the question, Cam, which was asked on this video, how could we know if an embryo has a moral status or not? And I mean, the answer is very, very, very simple, sir. We know that a child, an embryo rather, has a moral status when a woman is going to get an abortion. That means that they don't have a moral status because th their lives are going to be ended, which means they won't have a future. And because they won't have a future, they won't have a moral status. Uh, Cam, you got the, for, for those who are listening, Cam's just like face palm. <laughs> Now, on the flip side, I'm like halfway through, so uh, okay. hold your thoughts. On the flip side, we if we know that a woman will continue her pregnancy, then we know that her fetus is something with a moral status. And so her conclusion is that having a moral status is a contingent matter. If you were aborted, you um, would have had a short existence that didn't morally matter. If you weren't aborted, your existence is longer and therefore you had a moral status also when you were at that early stage when you could be aborted. And this is what she says, Kim, and I'll pass it over to you. The future endows moral status on it, it being the preborn child. So the future endows a moral status on an embryo. And if we allow this future, then we allow it to be this kind of thing, this kind of entity that would now have a moral status. So in aborting it, I don't think you're depriving it of something it independently has because like she said, it doesn't have a future, therefore it doesn't have a moral status. Cam, I don't like, I mean, we've, I, I've heard a lot of arguments, man. And I've heard arguments that stumped me that I was able to work through and, and respond to well in the streets. This is like, this is a special argument. This is a special argument, and yet this is a whole bit, whole lot of waffle saying that what will be will be sort of thing, which is a poor argument. And I would challenge people, uh, listeners here and anyone that you share it to, to not get bogged down and not be enamored by the eloquence of an argument. This is somebody, unfortunately, <laughs> who spent an awful lot of time in the ivory tower of academia and very little time actually interacting with other human beings. Um, no offense to anybody who's in academia, but... If you are in academia, make sure that you you pop your head out the window for air every once in a while to make sure this doesn't happen to you. Um, because all we have to do is, what about killing a born child? All we need to do is go through common ground analogy question. You know what? I agree with you that sometimes people die. That's a tragedy. Sometimes people die. Imagine if somebody were to directly and intentionally kill an innocent born human. Would the same argument apply that this was not a moral entity because clearly the crystal ball said that they were dead 
And if you're dead, you have no future. I, I find this the most ironic thing ever, that the number of people who talk about, you know what, it, it's important to not kill people after they're conscious because they'll know. What will they know? The person I'm talking to probably doesn't believe in heaven, probably doesn't believe in life after death. What does consciousness matter about the future after you're killed? If you're killed as a conscious human, killed as an unconscious human, how does that impact whether or not it's okay or not okay to kill you? And so just ask that question. Does killing somebody after they're born demonstrate that they were not a moral entity because clearly they have no future anymore? Right? We, we Like how how bamboozlingly idiotic would it be to say to a grieving member who has just tragically lost their, their spouse to a victim of crime um, of like, well, really your husband, your child was not a moral entity because if they were, they wouldn't have died. And so you don't actually have to grieve them because they weren't a meaningful human in the first place as has been demonstrated by their death. Right? And, and this, um, it, it's tempting to go down the abortion miscarriage route initially. I wouldn't bother going down the abortion miscarriage route until a little bit, until once you've demonstrated this principle, because the same thing applies after birth for, for both, right? Regardless of whether you tragically die after you are born because of a direct action like homicide, or by a tragic um, unavoidable medical circumstance like Huntington's or cancer or or any number of other things or a car accident or anything like that, whether it was intentional or not, just like whether it's intentional before birth or not, doesn't dictate whether or not you were ever a moral entity. I find this incredibly, um, incredibly interesting that they would present this as an effective argument, because I feel like that's just sitting on the surface of, couldn't you say the exact same thing about born children? Let's not let people off the hook or or avoid the burden of proof. The burden of proof is on them. Well, let's, let's go to this in a charitable way, obviously. That's why we want to build the common ground. We understand the tragedies happen. We understand that miscarriage and, and whatnot are a very real situation for a very real number of mothers and fathers, and we need to deal with it sensitively. But this is implying that we should have no sensitivity towards those who have miscarriages, let alone those who have abortions, because that was never a meaningful human in the first place. Therefore, why are you grieving? Let's go through the process. Common ground analogy question. I agree that death occurs, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. When it occurs after a human is born, does that also indicate that they are not a moral entity? And if not, why not? They might try to push back towards the consciousness, and then you can go one of those two routes. You can either go the age-based discrimination route that we've already spoken about, Peter, of, well, why aren't they conscious? It's because of how old they are. Therefore, abortion is age-based discrimination. How's age-based discrimination any better than any other form of discrimination, whether skin color, religion, creed, nationality, whatever it may be? Or we can go the route of why does consciousness matter when it comes to the impacts after they're born? What why what what bearing does it have, Peter, on you or I as conscious humans if we're shot in the head and there's no life after death? The fact that we were conscious before, sure, you might be able to say the anxiety building up towards death if if you're being taunted and tortured. But that is absolutely alleviated if we're shot in our sleep or anesthetized and then killed. Um, 
consciousness should have no bearing on whether or not killing matters. That's the way that I would go. Love it, sir. Thank you so much for that. Um, like I said off the top, man, I always rely on your expertise and uh, it did not disappoint once again. Um, that's today's episode. If you know of other pro-abortion arguments that you think are the worst things you've ever heard, um, let us know. We'll, we'll see if we can walk through them and respond to them. Um, Cam, you got a final thing? Yeah, and if you have a pro-abortion argument that you think is really strong, that you want us to analyze and break down, whether you think that it's idiotic and just want to point fun at it, or whether you think that it this really should be simpler, but I find myself getting bogged down in this for, for 10 minutes at a time, or if it's something super profound that you say, I, I genuinely think that they might be onto something here, uh, we want to break down not just the weak arguments, but the really strong arguments as well. I've mentioned a few of them already, bodily autonomy, um, the very real broken world that we live in, things like that, that I think are very, very relevant and very necessary for us to kind of untangle um, and again, we've done episodes on them before. We're going to do more episodes on them because they're always pre presented in different ways and because um, different times require different answers at times. And so we're going to do some of the, the kind of mainstream, more relevant arguments as well. But send us whatever you got, whatever you find yourself getting hung up on. We would love to try to help you untangle and find effective streamlined responses to whatever it is you're getting hit with, whether at work, whether at activism, whether um, you're seeing it online, wherever it may be. Perfect. Cam, um, for people who want to reach out to us, they can do so on our website, prolifeguys.com, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can subscribe and like this video on YouTube or subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher. Doing that helps us reach more people. There's algorithms and all this stuff that promotes content when they determine that that content is liked. So if you like this content, please, uh, please indicate to those platforms that you're on that you do in fact like this content and they will help us to push this content to more and more people. And that's our goal is reaching more and more people, not just with like information about abortion, but like, as you said, Cam, the, the tools that we can use, the streamlined apologetics, the time-tested and street-tested conversational tactics that we can utilize when we are on the streets, when we're in conversations with friends or family or schoolmates or whoever it might be. So you can find us there. Um, don't forget to share this with your friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you tune in again next time. Mm.